Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The garden was called the Garden of Delights. And in the middle of the garden was a palace called the Palace of Marvels, belonging to the Caliph Harun al-Rashid. Whenever the Caliph felt his chest constricted, he would come to this garden and this palace to breathe freely, to amuse himself and forget his cares. The entire palace was formed of one immense chamber lighted by 80 windows. This chamber was opened only when the Caliph came, then all the lamps and the great chandelier would be lighted and all the windows flung open and the caliph would sit on his great divan covered in silk, velvet and cloth of gold and cause his singers to sing and musicians to delight him with their music. And thus, in the calm of the night and amid the warm air sweetened with the scent of the flowers in the garden, the caliph could feel true contentment in the city of Baghdad. So that, Tom, was the Arabian Nights. And that is a description of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, the person who is the embodiment of the golden age of Baghdad, the subject of the new Assassin's Creed video game, and a subject that you've long wanted to do on The Rest is History, Tom. We're two episodes in, and this is the high point of medieval Islamic civilization, isn't it? It is, but I think it's also seen as that passage that you read suggests it's seen almost as a city of of myth um and, and that i think is largely because of the arabian nights that we'll talk about in our final episode but the sense of baghdad as a place of romance of poetry of myth is a crucial part of the resonance that it has i think um because it is one of those great imperial cities like Rome or indeed, you know, the London of Sherlock Holmes that lives in the imagination as well as in the history books. Do you think, I mean, were you an Arabian Nights fan? Absolutely. But I think the interesting thing about it is that the Arabian Nights, whether it has the currency now that it would have done 50 or 100 years ago, I think in Western households is dubious. I mean, it was very much the sort of stuff of the the middle mm. or upper class nursery, wasn't it? I think They the loved Arabian it, Nights. yes. So if you'd asked me actually, Tom, where are the Arabian Nights set? If you'd asked me before this podcast, 
I would probably have struggled to tell you. I would have said uh, Baghdad, Cairo. And, and you'd have been right because a lot of them are set in Cairo, but the, the kind of the foundational ones are set in Baghdad. And Harun al-Rashid is the, the embodiment of it because it, he is the caliph who uh, kind of lives in his palace, so often goes out into the streets. And that is because, as you said, he is identified as this kind of peak moment in the great civilization of Islam. Yeah. That, of course, opens up the question of, well, is it accurate? <laughs> as so often, you know, again and again over the rest of history, we've, we've kind of looked at the way that the past is mythologized and then asked, well, w- what is the reality behind it? Yeah. And I think there's a, a, there's a kind of particular challenge with trying to work out whether the, the Baghdad of Harun al-Rashid really was the, the kind of the shimmering dimension of wonder that it is in the Arabian Nights because it's completely vanished, partly because the Mongols obliterated it right. when they conquered it in the 13th century. But also, as with um, Babylon, because it is made of mud brick, not of stone. And so it's all kind of melted away into sludge. Yeah. So the question of how golden was the golden age, how great a caliph was Harun al-Rashid, I think is a very interesting question. And today's theme, Dominic. Great. So Tom, give us, for those people who didn't listen last week, um, give us a bit of context. Where and when, we're in the Middle East, obviously, we're in modern day Iraq. You talked last time about the foundation of, of Baghdad, but we're now well into the Abbasid Caliphate. So these yes. guys who had toppled the previous rulers, the Umayyads. And so, so just sort of sketch that out a bit for us. So we're in the city of Baghdad, uh, founded by Al-Mansur, which we talked about in the, the previous episode, the first great Abbasid Caliph. Um, Harun al-Rashid, which is, uh, Harun is, is the Arabic form of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and al-Rashid means the rightly guided. He is uh, Al-Mansur's grandson, and he rules between 786 and 809, according to the Christian calendar. And he's the grandson of Al-Mansur, as I said, uh, which means that he is the son of the guy that we talked about in the previous episode, Al-Mansur's heir, who finds all the bodies of uh, the descendants of Ali in the storeroom with the tags oh, in yes. their ear, if you remember. Yeah. Um, so this is a guy called Al-Mahdi, and he is much more easygoing than uh, his rather austere and terrifying father. He's a great one for the wine and the sherbet and the dancing girls. And also, Dominic, he's a particular fan of pigeon racing. So Gordon Crowe would be pleased to hear that. So he loves his pigeon racing. Uh, Pigeon racing by this point has become a massive obsession in Baghdad. Everyone's gambling on it. Uh, Harun himself will love it. And Al-Jahiz, who is a great scholar, uh, ends up being crushed to death beneath a huge pile of books. He writes that a pigeon could fetch as much as a farm. So this is the, the kind of the world that Al-Mahdi is, uh, is ruling over. Um, and Harun is his son. But the story of Harun's reign is marked by all kinds of shenanigans that are very, very caliph. <laughs> They're very caliph. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're kind of stuff that, that people will probably remember from the previous two episodes, that there are certain themes over the course of caliphal history yeah. that become quite familiar. So one of them is uh, disputed succession. So Harun is the younger son of al-Mahdi, and his elder brother, al-Hadi, he succeeds al-Mahdi. At, he's very young. He's kind of 25. Mm-hmm. But Harun is al-Mahdi's favorite son. And so... Al-Mahdi has appointed him the crown prince, meaning that um, he will definitely succeed Al-Hadi when 
Al Hadi dies. Right. But Al Hadi doesn't like this at all. He's not keen on this arrangement at all. Because he, he has wants, a son. Yeah. He has an infant son. You know, obviously, he wants to get rid of his brother. So this is kind of alarming for Haroon, who is clearly not very popular with his elder brother. And what makes it more dangerous for him is that Al Hadi is a very menacing figure. So um, Al-Masudi, who's a great historian writing in the 10th century, says of uh, Al-Hadi that he was hard, he was coarse in his habits, he was difficult to approach. He was the first caliph to be preceded by bodyguards carrying naked swords, clubs, and bows ready strung. And part of this, Tom, is because in the caliphal system, it's not primogeniture. No. It could be anybody who succeeds. There's an inbuilt, inherent struggle for power. So it's not there's not an assembly that chooses. No. It's just whoever... It- garrots his siblings yeah. first. Yeah, pretty much. Because the figure of the caliph and his relationship to the mass of the Muslim people is something also that is constantly open for negotiation. And so that therefore, the corollary of that is that the qualifications to be caliph are kind of a movable feast. Right. But ultimately, of course, it depends on raw power. But if you are in position of the caliphal throne, then your power to get rid of unwanted younger brothers is pretty extensive. So this is alarming for Haroon. And there are various accounts of how much danger he's actually in uh, during Al-Hadi's reign. There are reports that he ends up in prison. We don't really know. know, They're very mythologized, these stories. But what is very clear, and again, an absolute theme of early caliphal history, is that the role played by very powerful women in the background is absolutely key. So Al-Hadi and Haroon share the same mother. Right. And this mother is a very, very significant player. So she is called Al-Kaisaran. She's a former slave from, uh, from Yemen. She had been bought by um, Al-Mansur, so the founder of Baghdad in Mecca. And he had then given her as a kind of present to Al-Mahdi, his son. And she was incredibly beautiful, slender and graceful as a reed, she was described as. And she is very smart, very witty, uh, very, very politically savvy. Sounds great, Tom. She really is great, I think. And Al-Mahdi becomes besotted by her, makes her his legal wife. Um, and that means that when he dies and Al-Hadi succeeds, she is the, you know, she's the, the queen mother. She is a figure of considerable power. Al-Hadi, of course, becomes very <laughs> resentful of this, a bit like Nero yeah. becoming very resentful of his mother, Agrippina. Because she, she's pretty autonomous. I mean, she's inherited lots of wealth. She has a great palace. She has lots of petitioners who are constantly asking her for favors. And she is then coming to Al-Hadi and demanding that, you know, that he, he do what, what she wants him to. And he becomes very, very resentful of this. And so he, again, a bit like Nero, he ends up trying to kill her. This at least is the story. The story goes that he sends her a dish of rice saying that, he, he had found this dish of rice so tasty that he wants her to have a bit of it. Um, and Kaiseran, by this point, is getting a bit nervous. So she feeds a little bit of it to her dog that probably <laughs> keels over, frothing at the mouth and dies. And so she then sends back saying, yes, it was delicious. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is tense. And it's, I guess, not surprising that soon after this, after Al-Hadi has tried to poison his mother, that Al-Hadi himself goes down with terrible stomach pains and dies soon afterwards. The official statement is that he's died of a stomach ulcer. Mm. But of course, there are lots of people who say, oh, well, he was poisoned by his mother. And there are other excellent stories that say that he's uh, choking, breathing his last, and uh, Kaiseran, his mother, 
absolutely finishes him off by getting a very large buttocked slave girl to sit on his face and smother him to death. <laughs> Brilliant, Tom. Brilliant. So that's exactly the kind of conduct that I expected would be taking place in yeah. Baghdad in the um, in the eighth and ninth centuries or whenever. Yes. But listen, so this is also very Roman. Yes, it is. Right. It's very similar to the kind of Julio Claudian behaviour. So with the Romans, the period you've written about, the sources are all very dodgy and yeah. propagandistic. Is that also the case with all this, with this whole period? I think so. They're, they're written about a century later. So I'm absolutely not going to say it didn't happen. <laughs> we, we all hope it did, yeah. but um, treat it with a pinch of salt, maybe. Treat it with a pinch of salt. But of course, you know, there's no smoke without fire. These stories in, in themselves tell you about the dynamics that are operative in the court. And I think Absolutely. One of these, one of these kind of themes that these stories does reflect is the fact that women in this period have a great deal of power, probably much more power than they will in, in due course. And what Kaiseran was to Al-Mahdi, Harun's cousin, a woman called Zabaida, is to Harun, his favorite wife. So he has three other wives. Yeah. Uh, he also has 200 women in his harem who give him over 20 children. So he's, he's very active. Yes. Um, and one of them, actually, Dominic, is a Greek. So she's called Helena. Oh, like the mother of Constantine. Yes. Um, she becomes mistress of the harem and she uh, ends up so, so celebrated across Baghdad for her beauty that supposedly she gives her name to a quarter of Baghdad, Helana. Oh, I mean, that's a nice Whether story. that's really where the name of that quarter comes from again, I mean, who knows? Yeah. But anyway, the tradition is, which is preserved in the Arabian Nights, where Zubaydah is always going out with Harun on kind of expeditions across Baghdad, is she's uh, famously beautiful, of course. Um, she has exquisite taste. She's a kind of, you know, the arch influencer in Baghdad. Yeah. Incredibly fond of luxury. Rather brilliantly, she owns a monkey that has um, 30 attendants. Uh, and whenever people come in to see her they have to kiss the hand of the monkey so that sounds to me like the kind of detail that probably cannot be true no dominic it's definitely true because in due course we know for a fact that uh, a general comes in is told to kiss the hand of the monkey and is so furious that he draws his sword out and chops the monkey in two how do we know the that kind that of that... detail that's invented i don't think so enough <laughs> of your relentless skepticism yeah. so the monkey enough. has 30 <laughs> slaves i mean that yes. i i raise an eyebrow at that <laughs> shall we say tom <laughs> So weirdly, throughout Islamic history, the possession of monkeys is seen as a marker of, of something that's not quite right. An earlier caliph had had a monkey, and this was one of the black marks that was leveled against him to justify rebellion. So I, th I think that um, it could be the sense of Zubaydah as having, you know, jeweled slippers, lots of extravagance, having a monkey is yeah. deliberately hyped because what's undoubtedly the case is that she is simultaneously very pious. So I think there's a kind of Jekyll and Hyde representation there in her character because she um, is famous for her generosity to the poor in obedience to the mandates of Islam. Yeah. And she also sponsors the building of hostels along the great road that leads from Baghdad to Mecca. And so this pilgrimage route comes to be known as the Dab Zabeda, the Zabeda Road, the Zabeda Trail. And she gives Harun a son, Al-Amin. And so obviously she's very keen that Al-Amin. Yeah will become the heir. So Tom, you know Zubaydah, who she reminds me of, great friend of the rest of history, is the Empress Theodora, because she conforms to the same stereotype of being on the one hand kind of luxurious and yeah. sensual and erotic, and on the other, kind to the poor. Yes, and pious and austere. It's a formula, 
isn't it? I think it's a it formula, is, yes. a literary formula for describing queens and empresses, I guess. I think it is. And I think, yes, I think it channels ambivalences that pious Muslim men feel about a female patron of charity and, and, and good works. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's right. The other thing, of course, that everyone knows about from the Arabian Nights is that uh, caliphs have viziers. Of course. I love a and, vizier. <laughs> <laughs> and Haroon has tremendous viziers. So they all belong to a family called the Barma Kids, which I think is a great word. <laughs> yeah. Great name for you know a toy shop or something. Well, surely the Barmer Kids is like some peculiar. <laughs> it's the Barmer Kids. Oh <laughs> Very good. Hey, That's hey, what... for the Barmer Kids. See, I was thinking, is that some kind of weird northern word for a, a bap or a roll? A Barmer Kid. I think that's what they call baguettes in Rotherham. <laughs> I guess it could be. No, I think it's. I think you get it on Nickelodeon. The zany antics of the Barmer Kids. <laughs> well, that's in very fact, good. they're from yeah. um, Balkh in what's now northern Afghanistan. Oh yeah, you know, they're a long way from the heartlands of the Caliphate. Yeah, they'd originally been Buddhists, and they had only converted from Buddhism relatively recently in generational terms. And they had uh, the kind of the patriarch of the Barmer Kids, a guy called Khalid Al Barmaki. Um, he had joined the Abbasid revolution because uh, people will remember that from the previous episode, the Abbasid revolution kind of was um, incubating. Yeah, in the east. Um, up in Khorasan. Yeah. And so he becomes vizier to al-Safa, who was the first of the Abbasid uh, caliphs. And then under al-Mansur, he'd become a governor out in Khorasan. So he was a, a very, very able man, a brilliant kind of financial whiz, but also a great general crushes revolts, um, impeccably loyal to the Abbasids. And he has a son, Yahya, who is equally able and who is very intimately connected with Harun because uh, Harun as a baby is nursed by Yahya's wife. And Yahya's wife has a, a son at almost exactly the same time as Harun. And so the two boys are brought up. Um, and this boy, uh, Jafar, becomes Harun's closest friend. He's like a brother to him. Um, and of course, he, he he regards Yahya as almost as a father, right? Particularly during the uh, the dark days of Al Hadi's rule, Yahya stays loyal to him, to Harun. And so, when Harun becomes caliph, he feels an incredible sense of loyalty to Yahya, and Yahya is incredibly able and serves Harun very very well. And in fact, for for centuries and centuries, he will be remembered in the Muslim world as the absolute model of a great, wise, pious vizier. Just as Jafar, uh, Yahya's son, yeah. the almost brother to Harun, will be remembered as the model of a dashing. He's kind of the the embodiment of coolness, almost. Right. He's a kind of almost a JFK figure. Cranky. He's charismatic. He's good looking. Is he like Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk? No, I don't think he is, because Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, Henry VIII's great friend, is. I mean, he's a lad. He's a rugby player. Jafar is. He's a pigeon racer. Is more delicate. So the description of him, to find words for his beauty, think of the purest gold coin of ancient Egypt, the pearl which glowing from the shell's depths breaks the diver's heart, or gold leaf floating from the craftsman's hand to gild the pages of a wondrous book. Oh. So that's not no. That's not the Earl of Suffolk, is it? That's like um, Hephaestion, Alexander the Great's pal, maybe, or Patroclus or something. Yes, I think that's slightly closer, because uh, Jafar is the most fashionable man in Baghdad. He's very cultivated. He's very sophisticated. Um, he is a great sponsor of learning. He's very smart. He is the guy who opens the first paper factory in Baghdad using 
uh, Chinese prisoners who've come from the, the distant eastern frontier. And in fact, a, a particular type of paper in the Arabic world is called Jafari, after Jafar. And basically, I think he's kind of, he's tremendous fun. And like Zabaida, he is cast in the Arabian Nights and other stories as Haroon's kind of companion in his adventures. He's he's basically seen as the kind of the ideal best friend, yeah. the model of a best friend. But then in 803, it all goes horribly wrong. Oh, no. And the Barma kids are wiped out on Haroon's order. Jafar is actually executed. Yahya is thrown into prison and he dies there three years later. And the question of why this brilliant family who Haroon has loved and who have served him so well, why they are brought down is, it's a topic of much, much debate, understandably. There seems to be no definitive answer. So there are stories that um, Jafar had been having an illicit affair with Haroon's sister and that this, this had offended him, both on the personal and the political level. Yeah. Uh, that Haroon had worried that the Barma kids were becoming too powerful, that they were a potential rival dynasty to his own. Uh, or possibly another theory is, is that they weren't actually powerful enough, that they didn't have, you know, because they were outsiders, because they had come from Khorasan, they didn't have the roots in Iraq that uh, more powerful families had, and that made them easy to sweep aside. And there is one theory that that no one, no historians really accept, that they were still secretly infidels, that they had- They're still Buddhists. Well, they were said to be uh, Zoroastrians, and they weren't Zoroastrians. They'd originally been Buddhist, so that's probably why the theory almost certainly isn't true. But right. we don't really know, because all of these stories, as we've discussed before, are, are essentially operating on the margins of the fantastical. You know, you have archetypes, as you've been saying, of the the overmighty queen mother, of the of the beloved queen, of the vizier, yeah. of the best friend who becomes a, a kind of a figure of tragedy. And of course, Haroon himself, amid all this, is cast as the flower of caliphs. And so it becomes hard to, to get at a sense of, of the historical Haroon. But I think the sources are good enough that you get a sense of a very, very able, um, very austere, very pious figure. So actually not really like the, uh, the, the Haroon that you described in the opening passage with the sherbet and all that kind of stuff. Dancing girls, um, yeah. Because actually he, he'd he made his name as a military man. He was a very, very keen soldier. Yeah. So one of the ways that he dealt with his unpopularity with Al-Hadi when he was a young man was he had gone off and fought with the uh, the Byzantines. And he actually, he, he, he'd gone so far that it was said he had rested his spear against the walls of Constantinople. And over the course of his, his life, he's very, very keen on doing that. So he's leading uh, campaigns against the Byzantines almost every year. And in fact, he's so committed to it that he ends up abandoning Baghdad altogether, amazingly. For someone who's so associated with the city, he ends up setting up a new capital in Raqqa. Right, yeah. Um, Raqqa is, is where the Islamic State made yeah, their own capital. But back in the time of Harun, it was very much a Christian city, but he makes it his, it's it's more convenient for launching campaigns against Byzantium. Right. So he's, he's a hardened military figure. He's a very able diplomat. Um, he He's famous in uh, Frankish history for having sent Charlemagne an elephant. Oh, that's a lovely story. <laughs> yes. But puzzling. I mean, getting the elephant all those hundreds of miles west. But very doable. Well, clearly. Well, because he's very, um, he sets up a, an excellent postal system. <laughs> Right. Well, rather, he revives an excellent postal system. The Sasanians, yeah. the Persians had had a very good... So I guess I, you know, you take an elephant to Aiken or whatever. Yeah. The postal service under Haroon were capable of doing it. Um, but obviously, he's also very hard. I mean, you know, one thing we can be absolutely certain about is there's no room for sentimentality 
in his life because he's ready to get rid of the Barmer kids. Yeah. And he's a very tireless man. There's a revolt in Khorasan. He goes off to suppress it. He does it. Uh, and then he he dies and is buried in, in Khorasan. So definitely a very able figure. And his rule will be remembered by subsequent generations as a golden age because it is so, so stable, because it is so successful. But I don't think that he ranks as an absolutely game-changing ruler in the way that Augustus or Constantine or Abdul Malik are. He's famous because people look back and are nostalgic for the order that he had represented and because of his association with Baghdad at the absolute pinnacle of its yeah. greatness. And yeah. I, I think in the second half, we should look at what Baghdad was actually like. Brilliant. To the extent that we can tell under Harun al-Rashid. Okay, brilliant. So join us after the break for a deep dive into the world of Baghdad. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are about to plunge into the seething markets and souks of Baghdad. <laughs> the hammams. The hammams. The steam rooms. <laughs> it's all to come. So come on, Tom, <laughs> provide us with some steam, please. <laughs> well, you were skeptical about the, the portrayal of the family life of Harun al-Rashid and asked how mythic it is. And the same problem, of course, hangs over Baghdad because as we've been saying, it's so mythologized. But we do have sources for it. Basically, there are three main sources, right. um, all of which come from around by the Christian Reckoning uh, 900. So we have uh, Al-Yakubi, who I think we've mentioned before, who's a geographer and historian, and he describes all the various kind of the quarters. He's kind of you know, the Lonely Planet Guide or something like that. Right. Gives you a sense of what it would be like actually to visit it. Then there is um, a guy called Ibn Serapion, whose great thing is canals. So he loves the canals and uh, we will come to the canals. Baghdad in a way is kind of the Venice of Iraq. I mean, it's kind of, we'll come to that in a minute. And then our third source is a historian called um, Al-Tabari who uh, describes the tragic events that follow Harun al-Rashid's death. Um, 
because again, there is a, a spectacular succession crisis involving two brothers, both of whom who hate each other. So we mentioned that um, uh, Harun and Zabaida had a son al-amin yeah and in due course he does indeed become caliph but al-amin inevitably has a younger brother <laughs> who also has aspirations to become caliph uh, and this is a guy called al-mamun who is the son of harun by a persian concubine and al-mamun had been born on the very day that harun himself became caliph and so harun is superstitious about this thinks it may be a, side, a mark of favor from god and so favors al-mamun as well and uh, Al-Mamun is given by Harun al-Rashid the governorship of Khorasan, which of course is the great incubator of rebellions. It's where the yeah. Abbasid revolution had begun. And sure enough, history repeats itself. Al-Mamun sends an army to attack Al-Amin in Baghdad. Al-Amin gets defeated in open battle, holds himself up in the round city in Baghdad. There's a year-long siege. Al-Mamun's army storms the round city. Al-Amin is killed on the 24th of September, 813. He's decapitated. His head is exposed on the principal bridge of the three bridges that cross the Tigris. Um, and Awamun is proclaimed caliph, even though he doesn't actually come and live in Baghdad until 10 years after the death of Al-Amin. Right. And Tabari's account of this gives very detailed descriptions of various quarters of Baghdad um, and kind of the topographical points where key moments in this tragic story happen. So they're close enough, I think, to the time of, of Harun al-Rashid to give us some sense of what the city was like under Harun al-Rashid's rule. And at this point, we think it's probably the largest city in the world. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so you'll remember that Al-Mansur's ambition was to make it the crossroads of the universe. And this is pretty much what it's become. And there are various suggestions as to how large it was. So Andre Klott, who wrote a, a wonderful book about Harun al-Rashid, um, he suggests that it was um, perhaps a million, which was the size of, of Rome in its imperial heyday. Yeah. Other accounts I've read suggest maybe 700, 600, 500,000, but certainly very, very large. And it is indisputably the most global city the world has ever seen. It has the broadest reaching trade routes of any metropolis until this moment because it has silks and porcelain from China, yeah. but it also has slaves from the frozen shores of the, the distant north. You know, we talked about the slave trade the to, Vikings. to Baghdad in our yeah. episode, yeah, on the Vikings, but it also has slaves from the southernmost reaches of Africa. So essentially there is no corner of Eurasia that Baghdad is not feeding on. Right. Um, and as a result of this, you know, there are massive, massive fortunes to be made because there's endless land speculation, a constant process of gentrification in previously rundown areas, massive housing developments. And that means that people who had grants of land right at the beginning, notably the, uh, the troops from Khorasan who had provided Al-Mansur with his um, backing, you know, they make absolute fortunes because they're sitting in the center of this, the most valuable real estate on the face of the planet. So this is good for the Abbasids because it provides them with a solid, loyal bedrock of support. Yeah, But it's not just land that is a source of wealth. There is also, of course, trade. And merchants are very, very admired in Islam. The Prophet himself, of course, had, had been a merchant. Um, and it's possible to sail down uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates to get to Basra at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. And this is where Sinbad, of course, um, Sinbad the set sail yeah. uh, down the Persian Gulf and out into the Indian Ocean. And certainly ships are, are going you know, right the way to 
Vietnam and to Indonesia and so on and bringing all kinds of riches back to Basra. But the real source of Baghdad's wealth is the fact that the caliphate constitutes an enormous single market spreading from the Atlantic right the way up to the, the gateways of China. And it's a single market in which there is a lingua franca in the form of Arabic. Right. And Islam provides frameworks of law that enable merchants you know, in Fez or in Khorasan to know that there will be a single standard. Yes. And so this provides enormous scope for Baghdad to basically globalize. And as in all great imperial cosmopolises, whether it be ancient Rome or contemporary New York, um, a, a, a consequence of this is an obsession with exotic cooking. So Baghdad is in pole position to get all those spices from India and from further afield into the Indian Ocean and beyond. But it can also get uh, crops from across the caliphate. And of course, the soil in Mesopotamia is incredibly fertile, so they can be planted. And the caliphate plays an absolutely key role in spreading new crops. This is the period when Spain, for instance, gets orange trees right. brought by uh, agronomists in the caliphate. But the, um, the key crop in Mesopotamia is sugarcane. I would imagine if I was catapulted back into sort of 8th, ninth century Baghdad, that there'll be a lot of sweetmeats, exactly. cakes, you know, mm. those kinds of things. And this is where we get that, all these honeyed drinks and exactly. sweetened, you know, uh, snacks and stuff. Yes. So these sugarcane fields that are outside Baghdad, across the southern reaches of Mesopotamia, that is where all those those rich cakes that the odalisks in their harems yeah. <laughs> are using yeah. to plump themselves up. That's, that's where they're coming from. Um, and even Haroon himself in the Arabian Nights is cast as a cook. So there's a kind of wonderful description of him cooking a fish. Like Rick Stein. <laughs> Very Rick Stein, yes. Or, or indeed Jack Stein. When it was well cooked on one side, he turned it over with infinite skill. And when the fish was cooked to perfection, withdrew it from the pan and laid it on broad green banana leaves. Then he went into the garden to gather lemons, which he cut and arranged on the banana leaves. Oh, that sounds delicious. So Haroon is definitely um, a foodie and Baghdad is, you know, it's definitely the place to go if you want Michelin three-star restaurants, probably the greatest concentration on the face of the, of the planet. But of course, there are also extremes of poverty as well as of wealth. And a lot of the poetry that we get from uh, Baghdad in this time are, you know, poets tend not to be <laughs> very well paid. Um, and so there's quite a lot of complaints about the extremes of wealth and poverty. So uh, there's one, Baghdad is a marvellous place for the rich, but for the poor, a place of misery and distress. Long will I wander, confused through its streets, lost like a Quran in the house of an infidel. And there are large slums spreading outwards into the, the muddy fields that stretch around Baghdad. There are beggars uh, everywhere. And in fact, rather like in Imperial Rome, the very poor have less opportunity to get ahead than domestic slaves. Because as in Rome, slaves are usually freed. Domestic slaves are usually freed. And it, it, it's a kind of religious obligation on Muslims. It's seen as something that is a pious duty to free slaves. And so 
this gives to the inhabitants of Baghdad an incredibly multicultural quality yeah. because these slaves are coming from all corners of the world. Um, and essentially, if you are a slave who is freed in Baghdad, you have a religion, Islam, that is absolutely colorblind. Uh, all that matters is that you become a Muslim. There's huge scope for you to, you know, to to get ahead. And so Baghdad is incredibly, uh, if not, I mean, it, well, it is multicultural because there are there there are Christians and Jews there as well. But it's definitely very very multi ethnic. Again, and this is very like Rome. You are unlikely, however, to be freed if you are a, a laborer out in the fields. And we mentioned the sugarcane. Yeah. And the slaves who are working on the sugarcane fields. I mean, they have a horrible life. And as in the Caribbean and southern United States in the 18th and 19th centuries, these slaves are generally uh, from Africa. So they're called the Zanj, the same um, word from which Zanzibar comes. So they're brought from southern Africa. Right. And they are, you know, draining the marshes, working in the sugarcane fields. So that is a source of potential danger. Yeah. You know, there are large, large numbers of resentful slaves beyond Baghdad. Tens of thousands, Tom? Presumably, yes, I would think so. Yeah. Um, and there are, of course, there are fires, there are floods, there are plagues, there are sectarian riots, there are mafiosi, uh, there are gangs. So it's a, a dangerous place and very, very dependent on the kind of security that a strong caliph like Harun al Rashid can provide. Right. So the topography of it, uh, we talked about the the round city that was built by Al Mansur, and there's a great. A great um, sense of how, what it had come to be by the time of Harun al Rashid in a wonderful book that was written in 1900 by, um, uh, he's British, even though he has a Belgian name, Guy Lestrange, uh, Baghdad during the Abbasid Caliphate. And he says that by the time of Harun, the round city of Mansur bears the same relation to Greater Baghdad as the city of London now bears to Greater London, which I think is a great. Oh, way so of- it's been swallowed up. Effectively in yes. suburbia, yeah, and it's been improved. So uh, the great mosque, it's been pulled down, rebuilt by Harun al Rashid. Um, the Palace of the Golden Gate, which listeners will remember, stands at the heart of the uh, of the Round City. Harun did not like it. It was used by Al Amin, his son, in his final stand when the armies came of his younger brother, and it was, I think, so badly damaged in that si- in that siege that it was never used as a royal palace again. And the, the great green dome with its uh, guy on the horseback with the spear, um, that collapses in 941, is struck by lightning and then by heavy rainstorms, and it, it kind of disintegrates. The arcades that had ri- originally been built as markets, um, they are used as barracks for the caliph's guards. And essentially, it kind of becomes a prison zone. So you have a prison as well. It's the center of the security apparatus, and it it kind of therefore ceases really to be the kind of place that a caliph will want to go. So it's, it, it has its heyday under Al-Mansur, but by, by the time of Harun, it's again a bit like the city. It's, beca- it's not a place that people kind of go. Right. You know, it's there for, for the police and for the soldiers and for, for criminals to be locked up, but it's not a place you'd go and have fun times. However, fortunately, uh, beyond the round city, there's lots of fun to be had. Because um, I mentioned about these canals and how it gives to Baghdad a, a sense of Venice. These are being threaded off from, from the Tigris. And of course, people in Mesopotamia are, are brilliant at, at irrigation. And the caliphs are the heirs of the Persian kings who had been developing this enormous network of canals. They have to be dredged, of course. You can't allow them to become fetid because that would then breed malaria. But under a, a caliph like Harun, who can organize all this, 
there's a kind of magical Venetian quality to it. Right. And Al Makdisi, who is a, a geographer writing in the late 10th century, says that the people of Baghdad come, go, and move about on water. So very like Venice. And the saying in Baghdad is that that every person should have an ass in his stable and a boat on the river. Uh, and of course, who has the most boats? Obviously, the, the caliph. And Al-Amin, before he comes to his disastrous end, he had six processional barges in the form of, respectively, an eagle, a lion, a horse, an elephant, a dolphin, and a serpent. Right. And so, again, it's like the doge going out on you know, his great triumphal barge. Yeah. So, tremendous scenes. <laughs> and I see from your notes that the canals have names that give us some sense of, of the city. So, the canal of the clothes merchants, the canal of the cooks, the canal of dogs. Tom, what's yeah. the canal of dogs? Not kennels, presumably. Well, that's named after the number of strays that okay, are loose right. in this particular quarter. Yeah. Uh, and there's also the canal of birds, which are songbirds in cages. Oh. Well, you know, I mean, the odalisks in the harem need songbirds in their pretty cages, don't they? Yes. It all comes back to the harem. So this is all very Arabian nights. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the reason why geographers and poets alike go on about the water is, of course, that it gets very hot in Iraq. And so the water is expressive of, of cool and freshness, beauty. And of course, it's the caliphs who command the most glorious water features. But there is a sense that it should be made available for everyone. So the rich will donate pools or fountains for the use of the poor. And the sense that also that gardens should be made available. This is also uh, something that that I think makes Baghdad quite a livable city, despite all the the heat and the stress and the dust yeah. and the stray dogs and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you can buy anything in Baghdad. I mean, that's the re also the reason why people come there. You know, this great global entrepot. So the markets um, are focused in uh, the region called Kark on the west, the western side, right? It's south. It's south of the, the round city. Okay. And it's um, it's bordered by the Tigris on the east side and by the Pilgrim's Way, the uh, Sabida's road that leads to Mecca on the west. Yes. Its main market is enormously large. I mean, it's kind of miles long, almost a mile wide. And anyone who's been to a, a kind of, you know, bazaar in Istanbul or wherever, you know, it's divided up into, it has kind of allotted avenues, courtyards, you know, you buy silks in one place or sweetmeats in another. Yeah. So you can know exactly where you've got to go. And in turn, that means that all the roads have incredibly evocative names. So I think my favorite one is the um, the market of the thorn sellers and the brambles are used to heat the, the baths. So it's all <laughs> kind of tremendous. And the zoning, so the unpleasant trades of which butchers would be an obvious example with all the, you know, the smell of the blood and the flies, they're kind of pushed out to the borders of the zone. And this means that it's quite easy for areas that in the time of Al-Mansur had been regarded as kind of working class to gentrify. So you get quite a lot of gentrification has happened by the time of uh, Harun al-Rashid. You have quarters that previously had been used by blacksmiths or whatever, starting right. to become the homes of lawyers or judges or whatever. So this is all on the uh, the western side of the Tigris, where the city was originally founded. Yeah. But you also have mass developments on the eastern side. Listeners may remember that Al-Mansur had built Al-Mahdi when he was the crown prince, a beautiful palace uh, on the banks of the, the Tigris on the eastern side of the city. And this quarter, it's called Rusafa. By the time of Harun al-Rashid, it's 
one of the most glamorous quarters in the whole city. It has the most beautiful and the largest mosque in the whole of Baghdad. The palace that had been given to Al-Mahdi, Harun uses it, enlarges it. Um, there are gardens, there are fountains. So the description of Harun that you read, I mean, this is probably where he should be imagined as kind of hanging out. Right. And there are various kind of distinctive quarters that abut Rusifer, this kind of great complex of palaces. Um, so north of it is uh, the Highgate Cemetery of Baghdad, where all kinds of famous people are buried. So um, Abu Hanifa, Dominic, who is a very famous uh, Muslim scholar who we'll be talking about in our final episode, he's buried there. Yep. Um, Ibn Ashak, who is the author of the earliest uh, surviving oh, yeah. biography of, of yep. Muhammad, is there. L- lots of caliphs will end up buried there. So that's very swanky. Um, and then also on the Eastern Bank, you have the, uh, the Christian quarter, the Dar Arum, the House of the Greeks, as they call it. Um, and just to say about the status of Jews and Christians in Baghdad, they have complete toleration. You know, they, they are absolutely allowed to do what they like to celebrate their festivals and their rituals. They have to pay the jizya, you know, which is this distinctive tax. Yes. But otherwise, they, you know, they're very much kind of woven into the urban fabric. Could you advance as a Christian or a Jew within Baghdadi society if you paid the tax? Could you just yes, cra- absolutely. keep going? You yeah. could become a rich merchant. You could become a commander of soldiers. There's no prohibition against that. Yeah, you absolutely could. Christians were particularly famous as uh, doctors, Jewish merchants, Christian merchants, you could do very well. Okay. And of course they are, you know, they're as grateful to the security provided by Harun al-Rashid as any Muslim. So yes. there are sectarian tensions within Baghdad, but they tend to be between different factions of Muslims rather than Muslims kind of kicking over Christians or Jews or right. vice versa. Interesting. So yeah, that is not a source of sectarian tension. So I think you definitely get a sense that the, the kind of the great theme in the Arabian Nights, which again, you know, we'll be coming to, of a place of fabulous wealth and sophistication and a place of kind of teeming multitudes where terrible things can happen, but also great wonders can be found, that this is rooted in a certain historical reality. Yeah. It is a place of, of slums, of violence, of robbery, of theft. But it is also a place where you have palaces kind of stretching along the banks of the Tigris. So Jafar, for instance, the beloved friend of Harun, whom he ends up killing, he kind of develops what in London terms perhaps would be Hampton Court, kind of great palaces along the river that are outside the main center of conurbation. And these become, again, a kind of an entire string of pleasure resorts, fountains, all the works that ultimately get swallowed up by the city. It's got a polo pitch, I read here, Tom. Yeah, it's got a polo pitch. It's got a race course. Um, it has uh, a kind of a, a, a park for wild beasts, which is a tradition that goes all the way back to um, the ancient Persian kings, the Babylonian kings, the Assyrian kings. So, you know, the sense of Baghdad as the successor to those great ancient capitals is absolutely present there, I think. And that is why I think it's remembered. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of have a sense of Babylon as a great city, and I think Baghdad is absolutely the heir to that sense. And so, Tom, the obvious question is: if it's so fantastic, so brilliant, I mean, Rome, you know, its splendor lasted for centuries. Why doesn't Baghdad's golden age last longer, or does it last longer? And I just don't know about it. My sense is that there's all kinds of revolts, and there's a, a yeah, a, a lot of stuff with slave soldiers that goes wrong. Yes, so. It does remain the great global capital for several centuries. 
And that's why its destruction by the Mongols in, in the 13th century does come as the most incredible shock. But by the time the Mongols come, the golden age is long, long vanished. The caliph has basically become a cipher and the city itself is a much more turbulent and violent place than it had been under Haroon. And that's in part because the challenge of securing a stable succession is never really solved. So we talked about how um, the siege of Baghdad in, in 813 that ends up with the death of Al-Amin. You know, there, there are historians who compare it to Paris in the Commune, the horrors of that, right. the kind of sectarian violence that breaks out the the sufferings and you know as we said the destruction that's visited on the round city is never really repaired al mamun actually proves to be a very strong and effective caliph but he is succeeded by his brother a guy called al mutasim and his reign there are kind of endless conspiracies endless revolts and he gets so alarmed by how unstable Baghdad is, how kind of beyond the ability of a caliph to impose law and order on it, that he actually, he says, I've had enough of this. I'm moving out of Baghdad. I'm going to found a new city, which he does at a place called Samara, yeah. which is famous above all for its great um, minaret, which is like a kind of helter-skelter. I'm sure people have seen it. And of course, he now, you know, he's, he's left behind that bedrock of support that the Khorasan troops have provided him. So now he needs new troops. And so he starts recruiting Turks and effectively, he ends up the prisoner of, of his own. Yes. So th these are the slave soldiers that you uh, mentioned. And then you have escalating crises. By 865, you've got two caliphs, one in Samara, one in Baghdad. You have rebellions from Karajites and Shias, constant theme. And then in 869, the Zanj, these black slaves who've been working out in the sugarcane fields, they launch a terrible uprising and uh, Basra is sacked and armies rampage across Iraq for, for 15 years. Uh, tens of thousands of people die. Meanwhile, the chaos in the center, provinces out in the, the, the outer reaches of the caliphate start to disintegrate. And basically, Baghdad never recovers the supremacy, the security, the geopolitical centrality that it had had under Haroon. And that, I think, is why his name is particularly commemorated by Muslim scholars, but also by the tellers of stories and fables yeah. over the centuries that follow. And that's what we'll be coming to next time, isn't it, Tom? So we'll be looking at Baghdad's impact on the world's imagination. We'll be looking at its impact on Islam and the way it shapes this transformative religion. But also we'll be looking at the Arabian Nights and the way in which Baghdad's luster endures in the world of the Arabian Nights and the history that lies behind all that. So we'll be doing that on Thursday. If you're a member of the Rest is History Club, if you're a member of what I know Tom likes to think of as our own, if you're one of our odalisks, <laughs> then you will be able to listen to that right now. And if you're not, if you're if you're living outside the round city, as it were, then you'll have to wait till Thursday and Tom will be back with the Arabian Nights, which will be very, very exciting. We'll see you then. Goodbye. See you then. Bye-bye. Hi, Resters History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. 
I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.